You're listening to Gearing Up, an everyday carry podcast, a show that was made for the everyday carry community. If you're into knives, gear, and hearing from your favorite makers, this is the show for you. Be sure to hit subscribe so you get new episodes every week and follow GT Dunn on Instagram for more content. Gearing Up is sponsored by Nutsack Bags. If you're in the market for a new bag or a satchel or a sling or a pouch, check them out. They've got some amazing stuff. Everything's made in the U.S. Everything comes with a lifetime guarantee. I promise you won't be disappointed. Just go visit Nutsack.com and see everything they have to offer. And thanks again to Nutsack for sponsoring the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Gearing Up. This is the Everyday Carry podcast where we talk about everyday carry stuff. Today is no exception I'm really excited about this episode. I've got a guest. Uh, He's been really gracious with his time. I'm not going to do the disservice of introducing him. Uh, I'm going to tell you who he is, and I'm going to let him take care of the intro. I am joined by Bob Terzuola today. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. I'm excited to have you. Uh, I'm I'm really so I, I just to give anyone listening a bit of a background. If you haven't listened to the last few episodes where I've mentioned this. I, I just had the chance to finish up Bob's book and, and uh, I, I've kind of taken a deep dive into his, his work, his history, and I'm really excited to kind of pick his brain on, on some of the things he talks about. But for those that don't know, Bob, just, just a, a quick introduction of who you are, what you do, um, and anything else you'd like to share. Um, well, I'm a knife maker. I've been making knives pro- professionally um, since 1980. Um, you know, like most kids, I always made knives when I was, you know, just a kid. Made them out of files. Sometimes I was able to grind them up. Oh, here comes my wife. <laughs> and there goes the door. That's the garage door opening. So Susie's coming in in just a minute here. All right. Anyway, um, I started making knives when I was just a kid. You know, the files and uh, pieces of metal and stuff like that. And... Um, when I was in Guatemala, mm-hmm. I was um, I was working in a jade jewelry factory, and uh, next door to us was a fellow who um, had bought a lot of knife parts from Germany. Okay, just say hi to Susie. Hi, hi Susie. I just got back from working out. <laughs> yeah. So when I was um, working as a general manager of a jade factory in uh, Guatemala. Um, our next door neighbor, his name was Jim Atwood, very interesting guy. Um, I, I mean, I could tell stories about him for the next two hours. <laughs> but anyway, um, he had bought up all the parts and pieces of the old German military knives from World War II that uh, they never threw away. They just they just stored them. He bought that stuff up and uh, brought all back to brought them all back to Savannah, Georgia, and had people put them together. And he sold them through the backs of uh, uh, men's magazines like Argosy and True Detective and Science Fiction Man, the little one-inch square ads. Uh, it would sell like the uh, the German Air Force dagger or the youth knife, uh, things like that. That's how he. That's one of the ways he made his money. Yeah. Anyway, he lived next door to the Jade Factory where where I was, and he got me interested in uh, actually making knives as a profession. Um, he gave me some magazines which at that time was called the american blade it's the it's the double predecessor to the blade magazine okay double because it it changed into another magazine and then it eventually changed into the common uh the one that we commonly call the blade magazine now gotcha 
Um, anyway, he gave me some of those, and he said, you know, you should think about uh, making knives if you're really interested, uh, because a lot of the equipment for jade carving and jade grinding and so forth is very similar. So I did while I was managing the factory and kind of built up a little bit of a reputation. I had friends uh, who were in the Marine Security Guard in, in, um, in Guatemala City, and I had people that I knew who were uh, basically uh, freelance what would you call them, uh, soldiers of fortune, I guess you would say. Sure. Working in Central America, revolutions going on there in El Salvador, Nicaragua, and attempting in Guatemala. So I knew a lot of a lot of people in the jungles there. And they mainly asked me to make combat knives, you know, which I did. And I started making uh, combat knives for sale. And that was basically my introduction into knife making. It had been about 1980, 81, 82. Okay. You start talking about some of these little pieces and I'm, I'm connecting them back to some of the stories and little bits I read in the book. And, and it's amazing that, that those stories, I, I, you said you could tell stories for two hours about, you know, just the one person, but I, I feel like we could dissect any little bit of that and just talk about it for hours. Oh yeah. I had five friends who were Argentine commandos. Oh wow. And they, they worked in El Salvador and they were exiled from Argentina because they had been communist hunters. Oh, my God. And I made knives for them and made some other equipment, but I really can't. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I shouldn't talk about it anyway. Uh, but anyway, um, they were um, they were in Guatemala. They did go between Guatemala and El Salvador. And um, I knew them. And I knew another guy named Ed Cornelli, who was a really interesting character. He was a sea captain. He uh, stayed at the house of this Jim Atwood, who was our next door neighbor. Um, looked like a little leprechaun <laughs> with a bald head, and he was always uh, sunburned on the top. And he was a sea captain, and he he organized and ran the first shipment of weapons into Nicaragua for the Contras. Oh my God! Against the Sandinistas. Wow! Uh, from Beirut, and it was that was I mean that's another. A probably hour-long interesting story. <laughs> I love it. I love yeah, it. I've got a bunch of them. That's great. So if you want to concentrate on knives. <laughs> yeah, let's uh, listen. I, I've been known to get off on tangents and I, I get I, I get excited about something and we'll chase that, but we'll stay on knives. So when did the transition from these these sort of fixed blade, you know, regular, I don't want to say regular, uh, but these fixed blade sort of military-focused knives or combat-focused knives when did that shift over to a folding knife and what was that sort of discovery like or process like, or what, what, what was the impetus to, to get you to move to that, that folder? Well, I go back to uh, the period between 1980 and 1984. 1984 is when I left Guatemala with my family mm -hmm. and moved up to Santa Fe and opened a knife, uh, my, my, my knife workshop uh, and went full time. Okay. 1984. Okay. Up to that time, I've been making only fixed blades. Not only the military type, uh, the Model 30, which I designed for the Special Forces. They were, the first two Model 30 battle guards were given to the Soldier of the Year and the Non-Com of the Year at Fort Bragg wow. in 19, uh, 1982. I designed that knife for the Special Forces, and those first two were used by them. They sent me back some very nice letters of thank you. Uh, and I had some other military, larger and some smaller type of um, 
combat knives, I would call them. Sure. At the same time, I was also doing like hunting knives, skinners, uh, utility knives with more fancy handles. Like I really liked wood. I used a lot of cocobola wood, mm-hmm. some stag, um, stainless steel bolsters, uh, polished blades rather than sandblasted and so forth. And um, when I got to the United States in 1984, moved into Santa Fe, I started thinking about folders. And at that time, people were making folders that were all generally pretty similar. They were gentlemen's pocket knives, generally speaking. Um, The Buck 110 was a commercial knife that everybody had. And it was a usable knife, but extremely heavy, uh, needed two hands to open it. And I started looking at folding knives and realized that, you know, everybody was kind of doing them pretty much the same with various levels of sophistication and various levels of adornment. Sure. And some some people like, uh, you know, uh, Joe Caius and, and um, Steve Hole, uh, they were making, you know, very fancy beautifully, beautifully made, uh, no question about it, gentlemen's pocket jewelry almost. Right. And other people like uh, Mel Pardue, for example, or um, um, uh, Pat Crawford with his son, they were making um, more useful knives, but still kind of very similar with uh, pinned pivots, you know, where you would, you would actually put the pivot in and then hammer it closed. Right and polish over the bolster so you wouldn't see the pivot at all. Right. And of course, you couldn't do anything with it afterwards because it was locked in there. Yeah. And I kind of, I started looking at, I had, a because of all my friends who were in the military and in clandestine operations and a very good friend who was up in Pecos, New Mexico, which is not far from Santa Fe, had a school called the Ranger Outreach Center. And we used to talk about knives and his experience as a, three-time service in the in Vietnam in the special forces and he worked in the SOG program and the Phoenix program and he had this school of for civilians to come and learn precision rifle and living out in the woods and he had some explosive stuff up there also yeah and we got to talking a lot about you knives you know and I realized a couple of things one is that when I'd go to a show, the most that I could fit into my suitcase was about six or seven knives because they were all big right. combat knives. Yeah. You, know, I, the, you know, I don't like to travel with a lot of suitcases. And then I started thinking that people have more pockets than they have belts. Right. Uh, you can put one knife on a belt, but you can put several knives in your pockets. Yep. And I could carry more to a show. So I started thinking about what a folding knife should be. Apropos of that, let me give you a little side story. Sure. You like side stories? Absolutely. Side story. We were um, at a New York show. Um, several of us, I think we were six of us, went out to dinner uh, at a place called Live Bait, which is right near the uh, the Flatiron building on 23rd Street. Okay. And uh, Sal Glesser and Gail Glesser were there, the people from Spyderco, people who own Spyderco. And a couple of other knife makers. Uh, Pat Crawford was there, and I think we were six. We were uh, no seven people around the table. And Sal suddenly said, "You know, I wonder how many knives we're carrying right now." Apropos of having knives in your pocket, right? So we all pulled our knives out, put them on the table, and it turned out I won't ask you to guess how many. <laughs> 
We had 36 knives among the seven people sitting around the table. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so that kind of bolstered my idea that, you know, folding knives was the way to go. Sure. Okay. So I started thinking about it. I really did not want to make a knife that could not be taken apart. To me, that was really important. Yeah. Both for the end user and for me, because I would I knew that I would be constantly fiddling and fixing it and getting it just right and take it apart and put it back together again. You know, um, I never believed in being able to get it perfect on the first try. Sure. Because I never could. So I started thinking about you know, what am I looking for? I'm looking for effectiveness. I'm looking for portability, for um, ultimate usability. And I want it to be used by not only military people, but also um, truckers, packers, people that work with rope, mariners, um, anybody who actually has to use a knife on a daily basis. Yeah. And I thought to myself, now, what are the problems that we run into when we have a knife in our pocket and we want to use it? Generally speaking, not always, but generally, quite often, we're holding what we want to cut. Right. Be it an envelope or a package or a rope, especially if you're up on a ladder holding on to something, you know, you want to be able to open it and close it with one hand. That, to me, was really important. Yeah. Then um, I said, you know, a lot of these people are going to be in, in really dirty, dusty situations. you got a soldier who's going to be rolling down a hill. you got a trucker who's going to be, uh, you know, underneath the truck fixing his brake line or something, you know. And it's going to get dirty and gritty and gummy. Yeah. I want this guy to be able to take it apart and fix it or clean it at the very least. Right. So that I came up with the idea of screwing the handles together and using a screw-in pivot which can be removed fairly easily. Mm -hmm. In fact, the first folders that I made, I used a uh, plain old ordinary hex screw, a, a, a button hex screw. And in the plastic envelope that I sold the knife in as packaging, since I didn't have anything else, I would put my business card, and on the back of the business card, stuck on with some uh, silicone, was an Allen wrench. Hmm. And that Allen wrench was used for the pivot. Yeah. So that would actually be what I, how I would sell the knife, the original knife. Nice. So I designed the first one, which was I called the Model 1 Utility. I'm not very particularly original in these names, but uh, <laughs> you know, it worked out. That's hey, what it, I wanted it to stay, yeah. you know, Model 1 Utility. The Model 2 was a Mariner style with a sheep's foot blade, and uh, most of them uh, had half serrated. And I thought to myself, now, what other factors do I want? One of the problems that I ran into when I was in Guatemala, not a problem or something, but I had, I used to carry um, a Swiss Army knife, the soldier model, mm -hmm. which was cut the aluminum waffle sides yep. that had a couple of blades. Yeah. And it would constantly fall down in my jeans pocket and go sideways to my leg. So I said, you know, I want this to hang in my pocket. I don't want it crossways on my leg because when I sit down or bend down, uh, it kind of tries to poke through the, the pants, you know. Mm -hmm. So what I did is I put a little piece of leather, a leather strip on the hoop at the back, the bail, and I made a stainless steel hook, little hook. So I hooked it into the corner of my pocket so that it hung straight down in the yeah. pocket. And it was... Very, very useful, and that's the way I liked it, and it was easy to get at. I didn't have to go digging into my pocket. Right. 
And then when I started making, when I, when I started thinking about folders, I hadn't made any yet, but I started thinking about them and designing them. I saw that Sal Glesser from Spyderco had invented the pocket clip and his clips. And I knew Sal pretty well. Sal, Sal and I had been friends for quite a few years. Yeah. And uh, I asked him, I said, do you mind if I use these clips on my, on my knives? And he said, no, go right ahead. So I got a bunch of them. My, the first clips on my uh, folding knives were Spyderco clips with the three screws. And I ground off the Spyderco name uh, <laughs> on that. But um, that was the first time. And I realized that that's one of the things for a tactical knife. It has to be accessible instantly. With yeah. one hand, openable, closable with one hand, and um, lightweight and comfortable in the hand. No weird cutouts and, and strange shapes and uh, you know finger-fitting grooves and because you have to sometimes use a knife upside down. Sure. You know, and you don't. So I came up with those first two knives. And then the third one is the knife that probably really caused the most sensation and became almost um, the gold standard for the tactical knife. And that's why people call me the godfather of the tactical knife. And that was what is now called the ATCF. I called it the Model 3 at the time. Right. And um, I was reading uh, a magazine, the Defense uh, Defense Quarterly, and it they were talking about advanced technology airplanes. And I said, hmm, I'm using titanium, thanks to Michael Walker, who showed me how to use titanium and, and helped me get some from Boeing up in uh, Washington. Showed me how to use how to make the liner lock, which I considered to be the best lock because it's easy with one hand to open and close. Yeah. And really, really strong, if made correctly, um, and most convenient, and the easiest to clean, and the least uh, gummable, if, if that's a, if that's even a word that we sure. gum yeah. up and mess up and so forth. Yeah. Anyway, because most most uh, folders at that time were lockbacks, they mm -hmm. were they had the lock at the top with a very strong spring that would snap in there, and you usually needed two hands to close it, one to depress the spring towards the back and disengage it from the from the blade and then the other hand to close the blade well with a liner lock you can do that with one hand yeah you can re, uh, re, uh, uh, close the liner the uh, slip the um, the liner lock over with your thumb and with your forefinger close the blade and you can do that easily and put it back into your pocket so um i came up with what i called the advanced technology combat folder um i was kind of influenced by al mar he had come up with a knife called the Sear, S-E-R-E, uh, -E, and that was, uh, if I can remember correctly, survival, evasion, um, survival, escape, um, something or other, rescue and evasion or something like that. I can't remember what they were. But anyway, it's a, it's a military term. And that was his knife. And it was a pretty, pretty well-made knife, but it was kind of standard in many ways, didn't have a pocket clip. It was uh, not really openable or closable with one hand, and it was kind of heavy. So I, what I tried to do is improve on that knife, and I think I did. I came up with the ATCF. And the ATCF is probably, aside from some models that Bob Loveless came up with, with fixed blade models, his Hunter and his Big Bear, um, I think the ATCF is probably the most copied knife. I think, eh, well... One of the most copied or reproduced knives um, in modern knife making. Yeah. 
man, I just hearing all of that start, I, the, the story of how it came to be, all of the, the, the thought that went into it and just the justification coming from such a simple place of, I need it to be functional. Um, to me, I mean, I, I love it. It's one of those things it's, you know, now that it exists, it's like, well, why hadn't we always been doing this? But at the time people had, had been making it a certain way and, and that was just kind of what you did. And so it's cool that you you were able to step in and see a need for it, fill that need, and and it, it sounds like there was influence and help and and you know camaraderie within the the community or the industry to kind of help you to that point. So I love hearing that. Yeah, that that does exist. I was when when I was when I started making folders, I fell in love with titanium. Right. And I owe that to Michael Walker. Uh, not only did he show me how to make the liner lock, which he invented, but he, I think he was also using a removable pivot. I don't remember what his early knives were like, but he was making he was making knives with just titanium sides. Now his knives were more towards the artistic decorative kind. True, he, he was into that genre, and his wife Patricia did some absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous engravings on titanium. And the reason they used titanium was because it could be anodized. Have you ever seen any of Patricia Walker's work? I have not. No, I'm, I'm adding it to my notes to look up. You need to look up Michael Walker and Patricia Walker's work. Because what she did, she engraved these rather complex designs, some of them realistic and some of them just scroll work and so forth. And then she used a very fine paintbrush attached to the electrodes of the... <laughs> anodizing machine and she would paint the colors by wow. anodizing the titanium in the various designs and they were absolutely stunningly gorgeous so they were on a different level than what i was doing sure but, yeah but the basic idea was why why add anything onto the titanium uh it's perfectly usable just as it is it was simple and it kept my cost down yeah and it, I decided that I was going to be doing this type of knife. And I, I, I kept doing the fixed blades, some of them, and I kept I had orders that I had to fill and so forth. But I generally evolved into the uh, into the folder area and came up with several other designs, smaller ones, tiny ones. Um, a couple I did with silver chains and a silver hook that I called hookers <laughs> that would instead of a clip, and they would sit down inside your pocket hanging down in uh in the uh, in the pocket just like the one I used in uh, in Guatemala um they were very small knives so um then I started getting a little bit fancier adding materials um there was um I was the first one to use G10 on a folding knife <laughs> it's a, it's a it, here's a story I'll tell you another story I, I got a million of these stories I'm I'm here for it um, I, you know, I was looking for, you know, interesting materials to make the handles out of, maybe even to substitute from titanium, not the liner, not the spring itself, the lock part, but the handle parts just to, you know, be something different. I was at a show in Oregon, the, uh, the Eugene, Oregon knife show. And there was a fellow there, Kevin McClung, and he had come up with a knife called that he called the frequent flyer. And it was entirely made of G10. It was a fixed blade, one piece of solid G10. Period. Huh. Nothing else. No metal, nothing detectable, 
only G10. Flyer. I get okay. it. Yeah, okay. Got it. So I'm looking at this material and I'm saying, boy, this is really interesting. So I wonder if maybe I can put this on the, make, a, make the handle substitute this for the titanium on both sides. So I asked him, I said, uh, where do you get this from? And he wouldn't tell me. That it's kind of proprietary. I said, well, okay, can I buy some from you? He said, yeah. He said, okay. Um, so I ordered some from him and he, he sent me a piece and it was not black like the stuff I saw in Eugene. It was that pale green that now they're calling ghost jade, which yep. is coming back. People are yep. liking it. In fact, I've got one on my workbench. I was going to say, I have one in my cabinet right now. <laughs> uh, great. Yeah. My wife said, I, I hate it. <laughs> my wife thinks it's great. She says people are looking for it. It's on the market. And I said, okay, we'll make one and see what happens. Anyway, it was that color, which I hated right at the, right off the bat. You know, I, oh, yucko. So, you know, I didn't know what, I put it in the drawer and forgot about it. And then I looked at the box that he had sent the piece to me in uh-huh. and realized that he had reused a shipping box that the G10 people had sent their material to him in. So it had the name of the company and their address and phone number in the return address. So I called them up and sure enough, they had G10. You got to remember, this was like 1984. No, 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 sorry. 1986. Okay. Nobody had heard of G10. Right. It was unheard of at the time. So I put, uh, so I got some and it was smooth, 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 polished on both sides. But I realized that if I sandblasted it and got rid of that, that surface, I would get a nice grip. It came out really grippy, very nice. And it was a very strong material. Um, I could stand on it uh, between two chairs. Wow. Um, and it was, you know, really good. It was eighth inch thick, I think it was. I can't remember. Just flat, nothing nothing contoured or anything. And I started making some ATCFs. Still the Model 3 at that time. It was still called the, the Model Number 3. Um, made some out of uh, G10. And those were the first um, um, pocket knives, custom pocket knives made with G10. Now everybody and their uncle is using it. Right. Well, that's what I was going to ask is, is, you know, at the time, this material wasn't in the knife world at all. And so you, you found this one and due to some happy accident where. I I didn't discover it. I mean, I give credit to Kevin McClung for doing that, but he never made a folder out of it, you know? Right. So later on, um, I don't know if you want me to continue with this, but yeah, uh, no, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just along for the ride. I, I'm loving it. <laughs> okay, in terms of innovation, we get to. Uh, I love the story, and this story was in the book about mm-hmm. the the Spider Co C15. But I'm going to tell this story again because it's one of my favorites. Yeah, um, I think I told the story of of how I met Sal Glesser with the sharpening lesson. It was always a fun story. I used this story when I introduced Sal at the Blade Show um, uh, Hall of Fame. When he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, I was asked to present him and introduce him, which I did. And this is the story that I told to the, to the gathered people there at the dinner, that in uh, 1982 was when I first met Sal. It was at the New York Custom Knife Show down in the basement of the Sheraton Hotel. And he was across the aisle from me, directly across the aisle, facing me. And he had his table full of uh, oh, vegetables and, and various kinds of knives, big kitchen knives, small kitchen knives, combat knives, uh, hunting knives, whatever, because he was selling sharpener. He had these sharpeners, the what he's called the sharp maker. 
Mm-hmm. So he'd be standing there and somebody would be walking in the aisle, some unsuspecting character. And Sal would say, excuse me, do you have a knife on you? Uh, being a knife show, with the high probability the person would, you know. So he'd, right. he'd hand the knife over and Sal would look at it. And Sal was the, the ultimate showman, an absolute ultimate Carney Barker showman. He'd pull out his jeweler's loop with a big flourish and he'd hold the knife up to the light and he'd look at the cutting edge with his 10 power jeweler's loop and, you know, his, oh boy, this is pretty dull. So then he would uh, start sharpening it and use his sharpeners and he'd give a little spiel about how to sharpen and the different grades of ceramic that are on the sharpener and so forth. Okay, at the end, he'd sharpen the knife and he had this pile of paper next to him about uh, two inches by six inches, this pile of paper from uh, like Newsweek magazine and Time magazine, that kind of slick clay-coated paper. And he'd pick up one of these papers and he'd take the guy's knife and he'd start slicing it really thin and making little circles and cutting little things out. And much to everybody's astonishment, because by now he would have gathered this whole crowd giving the spiel doing the sharpening and then climaxing with slicing these things. So, you know, he just did a wonderful job. And he invariably sold a sharpener. Right. So at the end of the show, he's packing up. I'm packing up. I'm finished. I walk over to him and I introduce myself. I'm Bob Terzawala. I'm just starting out in knife making here. I said, that's a really, that's a really wonderful demonstration. I said, you're really good at that. I can see where you've had a lot of practice. He said, well, he said, the sharpener is really good. He said, I wouldn't be selling it if I didn't think it wasn't. He invented it, and he's having them made, okay? He said, but, he said, that thing about cutting the paper, he said, I can do that with any knife on the table. And he picks up this 12-inch chef's knife and does the same thing, slices, you know, little slice, little circles and stuff like that. He says, I can do it with the back of the knife. He turns the knife over on the, on the top edge, not sharpened at all, and he starts doing exactly the same thing. He says, I can do it with another piece of paper. And he gets another piece of paper, and he starts slicing the first piece of paper with the second piece of paper. It's a little, and I'm looking at him, and he looks at me, and he says, "You know," he says, "the secret is not having a sharp knife; it's knowing how to cut paper." <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Anyway, um, I got to be really good friends with Sal. Over the years, we've met many times at the shows, and I introduced him, like I said, as the uh, the Hall of Fame. In 1989, we were at a uh, shot show. We were at the shot show together. And I was I was passing by the Spyderco booth and he called out to me. He says, Hey Bob, let's go get a couple of hot dogs. I said, Okay. I love hot dogs. We went over and we're we're waiting in line on the hot dogs. He said, you know, he says, I've been trying to get uh, some knife makers to do a collaboration with Spyderco. So, you know, do a design and we'll make the knife. Yeah. With their designs. He says, but nobody wants to do it. I said, Why not? He said, Well, the signature part of a Spyderco knife is the hole in the blade for one-handed opening. That yep. He had the same philosophy that I had. You have to be able to open the knife with one hand. Yep. I used a thumb stud, and later on I invented the thumb disc. But he used a hole in the blade, which a lot of people are now emulating with different shapes. and, and yep. stuff. But he came up with that. He said, I've got to have a hole in the blade because that's the Spyderco trademark. That's what people recognize. I said, well, you know... Sal, and I looked him right in the eye and I said, you do make the ugliest knives in the industry <laughs> uh, because of that hole. He says, well, yeah, but uh, we got to have it. I said, so I said, would you like me to design a knife for you? I said, I'd be happy to do it. And I'll put the hole in there and I'll make it not so ugly. He says, okay. So I came up with what they called the C-15. 
Mm-hmm. It had kind of a it wasn't a one of, wasn't a very pointy blade. It had kind of a sheep's foot blade, a little rounded on the top, and a nice ergonomic handle. And it was an EDC size. It was a nice size to carry. I think it was a three and a quarter inch blade or something like that. And uh, he liked it, liked the design. He said, now, what are your requirements for making this? I said, well, at that time, they were having all the knives made in Seiki, Japan. Mm-hmm. I said, number one, I want it made in the United States, at which point his face dropped because nobody was making that right. kind of knife in the United States. I said, number two, I want it to be a liner lock, at which point his face fell even further because nobody had produced a liner lock. I and uh, Michael Walker at the time were the only ones making liner locks. No company had ever produced a liner lock. I said, third of all, I want to use um, ATS-34 steel. Now, that's a whole other story in itself. But basically, right. it's CPM-154 it's, it's CM steel that was not made in the United States, was made in Japan because the United States had stopped using, the Crucible had stopped using it in the 747 engines. So they stopped double vacuum melting it, and it had impurities in it. So we went to Japan, and Japan was making ATS-34, which is exactly the same steel. Bob Loveless's steel, basically. I said, I want to make out of ATS-34, at which point his face dropped even further because you can't stamp ATS-34. It's too tough. It has to be cut by other means, basically, at that time, laser. Right. Nobody had ever made a production knife using a laser. Um, and I said, eventually, although the first ones had aluminum handles, anodized aluminum, I said, I want to use G10 for the handle parts. And nobody had ever used G10 in a production knife. So that C15 turned out to be groundbreaking. Yeah. It was the first production knife in the world made in a liner lock, made with a premium steel ATS-34, um, made with a G10, and had the parts cut out by laser. Wow. And we couldn't find anybody to make them until we. I got in touch with uh, Les Diasis. Les Diasis had owned Pacific Cutlery in California. Okay. It went bankrupt. His main grinder, Jody Sampson, was the guy who made all the swords for the Conan movies. Okay. And um, Les Diasis was looking for something to do um, in the knife industry. So we approached him and we said, you know, do you think you'd be able to make this? And he said, uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, a little bit of help and so forth. So he disappeared for a while. It turned out he went back. He was he disappeared from California, went up to uh, Oregon. And um, he set up a little shop and he started making. And every once in a while, he started making these knives. Um, and every two or three days, I'd get a call from him saying, my my shop manager, who's he's on the shop floor at the moment, but he wants to talk to you about uh, this, uh, you know, the angle of the liner lock. Nobody had ever done this before. They didn't know it was sticking. It wasn't sticking. It wasn't grabbing. It, you know, what are the angles? How do you do this? And so forth. So so I'd get this this guy come on the line, a little English guy, English accent. And he said his name was Vince Ford. And he's making the, he's, he's, you know, the engineer putting these things uh, together and so forth. I'm envisioning this big factory type of thing, you know. Uh, so I walked them through it and they made some prototypes. I sent them down. I, I did some corrections. I sent them back. And, and then uh, Sal, <laughs> Sal was at a, um, an auction for Western Cutlery when they went out of business. This guy comes up, taps him on the shoulder and says, you Sal Glesser? And he says, yeah. And he says, I'm Vince Ford. I'm the one who's making your knives for you. And Sal said, well, I thought Leslie Astis was. Uh, and Vince Ford said, well, I am. 
And um, we got to know him. And Sal and I went up to uh, where Leslie Assis had the shop. It turns out he had a little storefront with a couple of guys assembling these parts. And next door was Vince Ford and his father, Ron. They had some, they had converted milling machines to CNC milling machines. And they were making um, valves for artificial hearts. Huh. And they were at the same time making the C-15 knife parts. Oh, wow. They would then put bring next door. And they were tumbling them in an old cement mixer back in the driveway. <laughs> I love it. Uh, and and he'd bring the parts over to Les, and Les had these uh, three or four guys on this workbench with some tools, and that was the shop. That was it. Well, that knife, the C-15, which was the first knife, like I said, they used uh, G-10 and laser and uh, liner lock and so forth. Les Diasis, based on that knife, created the Benchmade Knife Company, and that was the genesis of one of the biggest knife companies in the United States today, the Benchmade Knives. That was uh, the Terza Walla C-15. They discontinued it, but uh, it lasted for quite a while. Yeah. My God, that's it's fascinating. Like, I, my mind is blown. I love hearing these kinds of stories are are incredible. Reading them in your book is is one thing, but hearing some of the nuances and details and things that just, you know, weren't in the book or or, or these little asides, it's, it's fascinating to me. Uh, absolutely love it. So to this point, you know, you've, you've gotten to the point where you're, you're making folders, you know, innovating the designs, the materials, et cetera. And then, and then now you're doing this collaboration. I got to imagine, you know, and it's interesting to me that the contrast between then and now where now collaborating with brands is, is fairly common. It seems, and I don't mean that in like anybody can just walk up and, you know, collaborate with, with Spiderco, but, but to me, it seems like that's, more commonplace, uh, at least obviously than it was, uh, back then. And, and, and so what are your, what yeah. are your thoughts or what's your take on, on that? Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it, is it good to see that, that more designers are working with, with these knife companies versus, you know, just sticking to, to their own little circle and making their own stuff or what, uh, I just, I'd just love to hear you talk about that and kind of what you're seeing in the industry. Just a quick note. So this episode is brought to you by NAFS. You guys know I've talked about NAFS. I've had Ben on the show. Absolutely love this brand. And I was stoked when uh, they decided to sponsor the show. So for those that don't know, NAFS is family owned and operated. And their goal is to think about knives differently. NAFS believes in you. They believe you can do great things like swap your knife scales or lube your pivots. NAFS believes in the right to repair. That's why they make their parts and tools accessible for everyone. They believe you can maintain your stuff and make it last longer. They're a small business with big ideas and affordable products. And easily my favorite point, they have a space kitty as their mascot. So I really love what they're doing. Shout out to them for sponsoring this episode. Um, it's It's changed exponentially since I started making knives in the early 80s and particularly folding knives in the in the mid 80s um, at that time we were all making handmade knives they were they were made in a home shop with hand operated machinery yes we had milling machines yes we had drill presses yes we had lathes but generally speaking you were operating those by hand you were turning the crank by sure. hand and we were grinding, and still, I still do, uh, grinding uh, by hand uh, on a grinder. Um, I was the first one, I was the first knife maker to have parts cut out by a laser. And this was about 
I used to I used to you know get sheets of titanium and spend hours at a really lousy bandsaw cutting these parts out. And I, I used to belong to the, I used to go shooting at this at this um, shooting range uh, in Santa Fe. And afterwards, a bunch of us would go over to a restaurant uh, and uh, at the bar and just uh, sit around and have some snacks and, and just talk about shooting and stuff like that. Well, there was a couple there that um, I introduced myself to and we, we started talking. They weren't shooters, but they were just having dinner there. And we got to talking and I, they asked me what I do. And I said, I'd make knives. And so, oh, they were very interested. And I said, what do you do? They said, well, we make lampshades. I said, lampshades? I said, Yeah. Uh, metal lampshades uh, with cutouts of like uh, this. Remember, this is Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, Santa Fe and Indian designs, cocopelli and cactuses and things like that on these uh, uh, tin lampshades that were um, kind of stained and antique looking type of thing. Very, they were actually very nice. I said, oh, I said, well, how do you? How do you cut out those intricate little designs? They said, "Oh, we don't do them. We have a we have a company in Phoenix with a laser, and they do the cutting." I said, "Laser?" He said, "Yeah." Said, now, my only understanding of laser, if you remember back, I don't know if you ever saw a Goldfinger, mm-hmm. was when uh, James Bond is on the the table of gold with the laser cutting up. That was my only. And and I said, "Can can they cut?" you know, thicker than this uh, thin material? They said, oh, yeah, they can cut, you know, like half an inch or something like that. Wow. And I said to myself, I got to learn more about this. Now, this was at a time <laughs> we had just moved up from Guatemala. We didn't, you know, I had my wife and two kids and, and I had a 13% mortgage at the time and not doing very well selling, you know, mainly at, at shows. And we didn't have enough money to go to the movies on dollar night. And I scraped together some money and I, I, I called up these people. Lindale was the name of the company in Phoenix. I said, can I come down and visit you and, and maybe do some business? So they invited me down and I, I got an airplane ticket, went down there and I talked to Lynn, the one who, Lynn Dale, Dale was another guy, but Lynn is the one I talked to. And he showed me the laser and how they cut and so forth. I said, can you cut titanium? He said, sure, we do it every day. I said, well, how much does it cost? You know, And he said, well, it costs this much and this much. And, and I'm looking at it. I said, uh, I had brought some samples down. And I said, can you cut these parts? He said, yeah, just get us the material. I said, does it cut more? Does it cost more to cut the holes in them? For the screws, the the you know the and so forth, he said, "Yeah, cost a little bit more." He said, "We'll but we'll locate every screw so that you'll be able to line these things up, and all the holes will be perfectly aligned." I said, "Yeah, I don't know, I don't, I don't know if I can, if I can afford that. You know, maybe maybe if we just didn't do the holes and I did them." And he looked at me, put his hand on my shoulder, and said, "Son," he said, "Let me tell you something about business." He said, "In business, the way to get ahead." is you let us do what we do best and you do what you do best. And don't try to do the two things together. Right. We do that better than you can do it. Yes, it's going to cost you a little bit more, but you're going to save an awful lot of time, money, and drill bits. I was like, well, and he was right, and I followed through on that. I was the first one to have parts cut by the laser. That may be the beginning, the advent of 
computer-controlled manufacturing for the custom knife business. Now, there are so many new knife makers, young, who have grown up with computers, I did not, um, who are comfortable with programming and, you know, and so forth, that have a CNC mill in their garage. Yep. You know, many of them, not just one or two, there are many. This was unheard of when I started making knives. Sure. We made everything by hand. We didn't make a lot of them. You know, right. Didn't do a lot. But, you know, I realized, I did understand that um, the advantage of a CNC milling machine is that you can make a hundred of the same knife very easily and yeah. quickly. The disadvantage of having a milling machine is that you've got to make a hundred of the same knife in order to pay for it. Yeah. And what you get into is instead of a great variety on your table when you're at a show, a variety of handle materials and shapes and sizes and different kinds of shapes and blades and so forth, the 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 trend the tends to be more of the same, multiples of the same, basically the same knife with variations on maybe some scale material, yeah. maybe some changes in the way the blade is ground, finishes, black blade, polished blade, et cetera, et cetera. Um, when, when I started making folders, I would, I would often go to a show with maybe 30 or 35 knives, and they were all titanium, didn't have any scales on them, um, and they were pretty much the same. They were like maybe three or four models, but many of them the same. And people would buy them and use them and so forth. And I wasn't charging very much at the time. But I was charging less than the other folder makers who were putting a lot more work and time and not using laser to cut out their parts and putting fancy and sometimes expensive handle materials mm-hmm. on, um, engraving and so forth, more pocket jewelry than utility and i was i had the utility market uh basically shoring me up that that was my that was that was what supported me the utility and military and functional police market those were the people that shored me up um and now um you can use uh, multiple different materials and but you find that and you'll see this on Instagram. A lot of the knife makers will show, um, you know, the work in progress. People love to see work in progress. You look at their workbench, and they've got piles of the same part um, to make 30 or 40 or even more of basically the same knife. Now, uh, my own way of making knives right now, if, if, if I could show you, which I can't because they're not all in any stage of the finish, every knife is different. I like doing every knife. I'll, I'll some, you know, I'll repeat designs. I do have designs like the Eagle Rock, the ATCF, the Athena, sure. and so forth. But I'll put different materials, uh, different blade shapes, uh, di- different scale materials. I like natural stuff and so forth. But what I like to do is innovate, come up with different designs, and I like to have on my table at a show. I'm always thinking of shows because that's what I was brought up with. Uh, sure. Um, I like to have no two knives the same. I like to have them to be all different. Yeah. In as many ways as possible. Not only shape, but also materials and finishes and so forth. Having said that, and having said you know that a lot of people are, are making many of the same knives and 
that's I believe that's a function of having CNC milling machines and lathes. At this point in time, we're at a we're at a sales and promotional flood like I've never seen before in the knife industry. Yeah. Um, we've gone through slumps, and I remember some really bad times uh, back in the 90s and in the early, um, early 2000s where a lot of knife makers left the business or had to go back to doing their regular job because uh, sales were not good, shows were not doing well, and so forth. Shows are not doing as well now as they used to back in the day when there was nothing but shows. Right. Now, there's the internet, there's Instagram, there's Facebook, there's uh, everybody's got a website, everybody's got uh, promotion online and so forth. And you can you don't have to go to a show to sell your knives. Right. Okay. That may be part of it. Um, the production of many knives off the CNC machine for each knife maker of the same, roughly the same model with some variations in materials and finishes um, helps to keep the cost down. So, and, and that helps too. But at this point, and based on not only talking to other knife makers, but seeing what happens at shows and talking to many knife dealers, people can't keep things in stock. I mean, yeah. there is an enormous uh, flood of sales and, and people are buying and people are appreciating um, the knives that they get. I mean, I'm getting, like I said, I've got 32,500 followers on Instagram and I'm constantly getting, you know, compliments and people wanting to talk and, and discuss knives and just, uh, you know, see what's new in the knife business and what's new in my business and so forth. There's a tremendous uh, interest out there, and I attribute that to computers and social media. For and sure. Being able to get around, you know, we've got we've got a worldwide market. I mean, I, one of my best customers is in Switzerland. Yep. Um, and another best customer is in France. Um, unfortunately, I don't have any best customers in England because you're not allowed to have anything that cuts <laughs> right in England. You know, I've tried sending knives to some some complimentary knives to some friends in. Uh, in England, and they all got confiscated and lost. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, uh, same thing in Canada. But um, generally speaking, uh, we we uh, we have a worldwide market. I have a lot of customers uh, yeah. and friends, I would say, also in Taiwan and in um, in the Far East. And I, I enjoy talking to them. And, and in fact, they've had me on Zoom calls for their little uh, club show, like in, in Taiwan. And I've really enjoy that. Uh, as you can probably tell, I enjoy talking. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're good. It's hard to I, shut me up sometimes. I, no, that that's, so I always tell people like, that's number one, that's what this is for. That's what this show is for is, is to just talk and, 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 you know, kind of hear, I love hearing origin stories and backstories and side stories and kind of just everything that puts you in the place that, that you're in. So you make an, an interesting point though. You're talking about Instagram and internet. And yeah, I mean, I think that the everyday carry world and the knife world, you know, as a, as a whole, they've seen just a huge influx and the, the internet, yes, has, has absolutely fed that and, and helped it boom. I'm, I'm interested to see what are some of the things that you've seen in the knife industry, you know, over the last, let's say, I don't know, maybe five years or so. What are some of like your favorite things that you've seen, some of the really impressive things you've seen or, or some of the things that have caught your attention 
over the last few years? Um, one is the variety of shapes and, and designs. Um, I'm really impressed with that. People are really coming up with innovative stuff. The advent of, of technology, um, for example, you, using bearings instead of washers, mm-hmm. and now using ceramic bearings instead of just steel bearings, you know, that, that type of thing. Um, it seems that just about everybody now is making liner locks. That is That has become basically the standard. There are some other there are button locks and, and access locks and different kinds of locks. And Alan Elishowitz has several. Michael Walker has several. Uh, Benchmade uh, has come up with a couple of different kinds, uh, mainly uh, from Mel Pardue had designed some for them. Um, but generally speaking, it, it appears to be the vast majority of the EDC knives and even the uh, the fancy ones, the uh, the art knives are in the um, the liner lock area, yeah. liner lock realm. You know, um, one of the one of the problems that people had run into with the liner lock was was because then of course everybody started making them out of titanium. Um, is that is the the stickiness of titanium with steel, and getting the geometry just right so that it wouldn't stick, but it would, it would not slip, you know, get it. It was a, it was a very fine balance. Now, um, a couple of years ago, you know, and, and now a bunch of people are doing this. I started using uh, steel inserts into the spring. And I started with just uh, strips of steel inlaid into the into the spring and held in with two little odd 80 screws now what i'm doing is dovetailing that insert so it just slides in and kind of holds fairly tight it slides in without any screws at all i like to get rid of screws that's why i came up with uh, the clip that has no screw that you can see the, the screwless clip that many many people are using now I did that first. I came up with the screws from the inside. It makes it a lot, lot cleaner. I, you know, one of the one of my big bugaboos is that, um, of course, everybody now is using the pocket clip. You know, after I started using uh, Spyderco's clips, that became, you know, an absolute for a tactical EDC that became uh, necessary. That, that was no. de rigueur. Um, but so many clips, I've always said look like an afterthought. It looks like they made the knife and they said, oh, let's stick a clip on here. And boom, a clip goes on the side and you got these big honking screws holding it on the side. And it just, it just, it just interferes with the, with the grace and the flow of what I consider a knife should be. You know, it should be, it, it should be a graceful looking type of, not a, not a chunky clunky type of thing. That's my sure. own personal, my own personal opinion, you know. I'll defend it, but I won't say it's the only one. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I always objected to, to to really honky slapped on clips. Many people now are using the hidden screw and doing a lot more sculptured clips, making them look a lot prettier and nicer. And I really like that a lot. Yeah. Another objection that I have, this is an objection. I don't know, things that kind of rankle me a little bit, is 
knives that have so much stuff on them, it looks as if the knife maker said, you know, let me clean out my shop. <laughs> let me, you know, I'm going to go through all the drawers and everything. Let me th- throw everything on the table. Let me make a knife with all this stuff to get rid of it, you know. Call the kitchen got, sink knife. <laughs> you know, moku tie and moku mei and, and carbon fiber and carbo tie and this, that, and the other thing, you know, all sorts of, you know, garish, loud, you know, I, I try to get away from the, the garish and the loud. There's a, Susie and I, <laughs> sometimes we'll look at a knife and we'll use this wonderful Yiddish word. I'm going to give you a little Yiddish lesson here. All right. It's called ungapachka. 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 Ungapachka means way too much. <laughs> way too much in terms of color and size and many things and all dumped on there and put on there. You know, instead of being simple and sweet and nice and graceful, it's ungapachka. And Susie and I <laughs> look at each other, we look at knife and we look at each other and say, ungapachka, that's it. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> Those are some of the little complaints that I've got. The wonderful things that I see are the way um, knives are being promoted. Um, There are so many knife companies out there, so many people who are producing, and I I don't mean just like a knife maker in his shop produces, but I'm, I'm talking about multiple pieces for the masses, for many people who, who, you know, knives that can, that can be afforded. I would very much like to see more American knife companies. Yeah, uh, we, you know, if if we wanna if we wanna have knives produced in any quantity, um, we almost definitely have to go overseas. Yeah, Italy, Taiwan, even China. You know, they're the ones who are geared up for making what they call OEM mm-hmm. uh, work for people. You know. Uh, in the United States, you've got production, a lot of knives coming out of, you know, Tour and, and Benchmade and yep. uh, Hogue, uh, you know, I mean, you could just name a whole whole bunch of them, um, but they're making their knives, their right. knives, you know, uh, Hinderer, the same thing, you know, you've got tremendous factory, uh, a bunch of people who are, who are making many knives with factory backgrounds that could do lots of work. They're making their own stuff. Sure. And it's hard to break in and, you know, you go to somebody and say, can you, can you make me, uh, you know, would you make me a thousand of these, of, of these knives? And I said, no, we just haven't got time. We have, and uh, one of the knife, there's, there's really only one knife grinding company, knife blade grinding company, and they're running uh, two and a half to three months back ordered. God. You know, so... Um, here in the United States, it's difficult to get that done. Sure. You know, I've been I've been criticized. We have a, we had a knife made. We had a couple of knives made by We We mm-hmm. Company, Civivi, mm-hmm. in uh, China. And you know, I, I have mixed feelings about working with China, but I really really like these people. I've met them personally. I've, I've met the owner and the people who work with them, and they're really salt of the earth people. They're very very solid. They always follow through. They did exactly what they're supposed to do. They did it the way we wanted. You know, they paid royalties on time. They're, you know, they always uh, want to make sure that their prototypes are exactly the way I want them, and so forth. We've done a couple of knives with them, and my tweezers. I, I have the tack and t mm-hmm. tack and tweeze tweezers. 
they did the tweezers, and they're also making uh, T clips, which is the uh, the old uh, tech lock that I invented. By the way, I don't know if anybody knew that. I have the patent for that. Nice. But anyway, you know, making knives in China. I've had I've had I've had people, you know, send me emails saying you should be ashamed of yourself having knives made in communist China, you know, in Chinese and so forth. Yeah. And I say, really, uh, uh, what device are you sending this email on? <laughs> right. Where, where did you, where did you get, where do you think this, where do you think your phone was made? Right. No. And I've heard some of the same things about the We Civivi folks um, in talking with some other makers that have collaborated with them, designed with them, or, or, or if they've done OEM work for them, whatever they've, they've all shared kind of the same sentiments. They're, they're the people there are awesome. And they, you know, not just that they're good people, but that they care about the process as well. And so, you know, I think the end result is you, you wind up with a, a product whose fit and finish is, you know, above some of these other you know, overseas manufacturers that that don't care so much about the quality; they just care about quantity. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that it, there's there's some give and take in that in that world because we just the, the ability or the availability, I should say, is just not there. But yeah, it's it's interesting to hear you know your thoughts on on making and marketing and 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 you know sourcing and production and all of that stuff because it's it's you know. I think at a very, very, very high level, you tell someone that you're a knife maker and they assume, you know, oh, this he gets slabs of metal, hits them on a grinder and puts them in a leather sheath and that's the end. But there's just so much more complexity to it. And especially now with all of the different available, you know, the availability just in general of products and processes and parts and pieces and uh, all of that stuff. And, and technology obviously has shot that way further. It's, it's an intricate machine. And, and one of the things that I wanted to touch on uh, regarding, you know, reading through the book, you, you, you give some very detailed instructions on knife making. And I, I know you were talking about dovetailing the, the lock bar insert. I think there's even like a, a pretty detailed section on that with pictures and this and that. And I remember reading through it, but you also give a lot of like, sometimes it's little off the cuff remarks and sometimes it's like whole chapters uh, or not whole chapters, but whole, you know, sections or paragraphs to like the business side of it. And I thought that was really interesting. Like there's, there's sort of this two sided approach to this book. There's definitely, I mean, it's part instruction manual, but it's also sort of business advice and navigating. Uh, I don't want to say the terrain, but navigating through like being a knife maker and I thought that was really interesting. What, if anything, has changed drastic? I'm, I say, if anything, I'm sure lots of <laughs> a lot of things have changed uh, over the years. But what is what would you say in the last few years, ten years, fifteen years, whatever, um, has been the biggest change as a as a knife maker from the business perspective uh, of things? Not necessarily the technology, the materials, the product, but but the, the business side of things, what's what's different now? Social media, computers, computers in more ways than one. Computers because of, you know, and, and sure. the, the iPhone and the phone and so forth. Um, and Instagram and Facebook and so all of the social medias, you know, computers, one thing uh, that, you know, that angle. But computers also in terms of making knives and how many people are now no. as much 
they are as much computer programmers as they are knife makers. I'm not because I'm too old, and I grew up. I grew up in a in a, in a time of dial telephones and typewriters and phone booths, you know, and all of that has disappeared, you know, and it's a it's a it's a brave new world based on the computer, and uh, it's a it's a sure. it's a it's a two pronged attack. I won't say it attack uh, approach two pronged approach to knife making and knife selling. One is the knife making part with CNC machinery and computers and designs. And the other is um, the marketing, the selling, the internet and so forth. In fact, I've got, <laughs> I call this my, my, uh, my, my analog CAD file. And that is a loose leaf binder with plastic inserts. And I have patterns for knife blades and knife handles that I pull out and I use to draw on sheets of titanium or steel. My, my, my blade blanks are all blanks and I grind each blade to shape and so forth. And I call this my analog CAD file. And uh, we did a, we were, I'm doing a, a, a knife with Boker at the moment. And um, I sent them a sketch and they said, okay, we like it. Can you send us your CAD file? And so I sent them a picture of this loose leaf binder. And I said, this is my CAD file. I'll be happy to make you a detailed sketch, but I don't do um, CAD on a computer or drawings on a computer and so forth. And that's one of the, that's one of, that's one of the major changes is the way knives are designed. They're actually drawn on a screen instead of a pencil and paper. Um, yeah. so the computers are not only used to control the machinery, CNC lathe and CNC mill, but they're also used in the very first stages of somebody, you know, with somebody who may not know how to hold a, or sharpen a pencil, but they can sure make a beautiful knife on a computer screen. I can't, I, I've never, I've never had yeah. either the inclination or the time to walk up that uphill slope of learning how to use CAD or computers. Basically, when I'm designing a knife, sure. I'll take a piece of steel or a piece of titanium or sometimes just a piece of, of uh, plastic and walk over to my grinder and just grind away. And that's how I do it. I often don't even make a drawing. Hmm. Yeah. So, but but that's me. You know, I'm that's me who started making knives in 1980, uh, before many of these knife makers were born. You know, which is okay. You know, that's fine. I mean, things evolve, and I know they evolve. And, yeah. You know, I'm kind of a dinosaur, but <laughs> no. you know, I enjoy being a dinosaur. So, I you asked me how you know, I think the, the major change is computers in terms of marketing and social media and design and and uh, machinery control. Yeah, most definitely. Um, man, this has been, I, I have just been thrilled just listening to you throw knowledge my way and, 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 and stories and all of that. This has been uh, a ride. Now, before, before we, we end our conversation, I just wanted to ask if there's anything, you know, if you've got somebody that's, that's, you know, introduced to you for the first time through this show or, 
maybe they, they, they're a longtime follower of yours and they're trying to get into knife making. Did you have, do you have any advice or feedback or anything that you can think to share with, with anybody trying to, to break into this craft in 2022 or 2023, well, whenever you're listening to this? <laughs> I have a standard answer, actually two standard answers. People ask me at shows, for example, or online and so forth. The first question that they usually ask me is, how long does it take to make a knife? And my standard answer is usually about a week and 25 years. <laughs> right. Because it's not something that you can just pick up and make in a week. You have to have a background. Sure. And like I can make maybe, I can make maybe three knives in a week, but I can't make three knives every week. Sure. Because I've got other things to do. You know, Okay. That's one thing. And the other thing I tell people is making knives is easy. Making a living out of making knives is very hard. It's not easy. I think it's getting easier now because there's such a great market and because of being able to sell on the internet and make money through the internet. Um, I think it's easier than when we just had shows and people writing notes to you by mail, snail mail, or calling you up on the phone, and no way of showing them a picture of what you were doing, because, you know, in, in the 90s, we didn't have our phones, we didn't have, you know, the, the, the iPhones and stuff like that. Right. Um, nowadays, you know, it's absolutely amazing. You, you, you know, you make a knife, uh, you know, somebody... Uh, send you an email, say, do you have any knives on your bench that you want to sell? And I was like, okay, yes, I got one. Send me a picture. Boom, you send them a picture. Five minutes later, they say, okay, I'll take the knife. And you say, okay, send the money to PayPal. Money goes into PayPal. Within 15 minutes, you've sold the knife. Okay. That's, you know, that that was unheard of when we started, you know, when I started making knives back sure. in the 80s and the 90s. But still, there are certain you know, there are certain, um, I won't say, I don't want to say rules and regulations, but there are certain, um, certain things that you, that you should follow as a, as a business person, period, no matter what kind of business you're running. So I used to run the business of the Jade Factory in Guatemala, and I used to, I used to uh, train our showroom people. We had a showroom. We had the factory. We had the showroom where people would come in off the streets or the tour buses would stop and come in. And I used to tell the girls that we we had girls who were running the showroom. I would say that the the two most important things in sales is one getting them in the door, and number two getting them talking. And once you do that, once you engage, then you can show around and show your wares and everything. But don't be overbearing, don't be pushy, don't try to sell them something. Let them sell themselves. And I've seen so many knife makers, for example, at, uh, at shows who would just sit in their chair behind a table and kind of look uninterested, like they didn't care whether you bought the knife or not. Sometimes the knives would sell themselves, but most often not. Sure. Um, I would never sit behind a table. Now that I'm older, I have to sit every <laughs> once in a while because my legs don't hold out that well. But in the older days, I never sat behind the table. Um, because if, if you're sitting and somebody comes up to the table and you stand up, that's immediately putting pressure on them of some sort to sure. engage with you. If you're already standing, 
um, they can deal with you or not deal with you. You know, and I always felt that that was really important in dealing with um, a potential customer. So you were right when you said, you know, I put a lot of business, what would you call it, uh, advice maybe? Sure. Uh, into the book because, I, because making knives, there's a difference between making knives for a hobby and making knives for a business. Sure. And once you engage in going to a show, even if you have your own business, uh, you know, you get a real, as my mother would say, a real job on the side, um, or your wife is working, or you have a pension or something, and you're, you're just making knives because you like to. Once you go to a show, or once you go online, once you present these knives to the public, you've got a business, yeah. whether you like it or not. You know, if you're making, trying to make money off them, you've got a business. So I tried to put some information in the book that, that I've learned over the years that, that I thought was really important to being, a, uh, to being a business person as well as a knife maker. Yeah. Well, I, I enjoyed reading it. I, I like to tinker in the garage. I've got a you know, workbench. I've got some small tools and, and things like that. I don't, I don't have the desire to go down the path of making a knife. But reading the all that being said, reading the book was still it was fascinating to me to go to, again, just seeing I think my favorite chapter, I want to say it was chapter nine, uh, just all the little jigs and gadgets and gizmos that you've created over the years. Yeah. It, it's so it, it was cool to see that and and to get sort of a a, a look inside your shop uh, through the book. So Bob, this has been incredible it's incredible incredible to hear the stories and and i and i thank you for taking the time out for for sharing your experiences for anyone listening if you want to find bob you can go to terzuola tactical on instagram you can go to terzuola.net if you want to check out everything he's got in his shop you can grab a copy of the book he's got the the tack and tweez tweezers and a few other uh, odds and ends in the shop as well. Bob, is there anything big coming up you want to share with anybody listening to this? Well, we're going to, I've been doing a, a couple over the years, the past couple of years, especially the COVID years, uh, where so many shows got canceled. We started doing some shows from the shop on Instagram, and we're going to have a show on the 11th of December for people who are signed onto our webpage. We're going to show the knives on Instagram and people who are on the webpage, who, who are signed up, can, um, can bid. We're going we're gonna to do a lottery, do a drawing for each knife. Uh, but it's only going to be people who are signed up at the, at the webpage. Um, anybody can sign up, and they'll get our newsletter and, and so forth. And um, I've got some, some other collaborations coming up over the next several months. Um, don't want to talk about it yet, but uh, we've got some exciting things happening. Uh, I'm, re I'm, you know, I'm 78 years old and I'm having a hell of a nice time. I, I love really it. enjoy what I'm doing. I am having fun. That's good. Yeah. Uh, my father once said, you know, uh, what brings you joy will bring you abundance. And, uh, you know, I always believe that. And I think that's right. And this knife making has brought me a great deal of joy. And thank you for having me. I really, uh, really enjoyed it. Yeah. It, it listen this. I've got probably another ten hours of stories for you if you <laughs> if you run out of material today. We'll have to set up a round two. I I my goal 
in starting this show was no, I just, I like everyday carry stuff. I like knives. I'm, I'm definitely a hobbyist, but I also like podcasting. I like talking to people. And so this just seemed like kind of the right fit. And, and, um, over the last few months I've been, I've been really trying to branch out and you were on my radar for a while. And, and finally I just said, yeah, I'm going to reach out, just see, maybe he's got the time. And if he, and if he doesn't, then that's, you know, that's fine. It's all good and well, but I, I was I was really thankful that that you responded and and you know took out the time to do this because this is this is something that uh, I'm excited to share with everyone. Yeah, I'll just leave you with one last thought. Um, one of my favorite parts of the book is Terzawola's Laws of the Shop, and the last one is what I've always believed: don't believe your own press releases. <laughs> and I leave that um, as a final thought to knife makers out there. Humility is really important. Yeah. Thanks again, Greg. I really appreciate being on. Um, and if you want to do a um, redux sometime, just let me know. Oh, absolutely. Um, everyone, again, make sure you go sign up for the newsletter over on Uh so you can get in on that Instagram uh, lotto that they're doing on the 11th. Thank you guys again for listening, and we'll talk very soon. Peace. Bye. Thank you again for the continued support. Be sure to follow GT Dunn on Instagram to stay in the loop. And if you want to get in on the conversation, check out The Pod, our Facebook group dedicated to gearing up. Make sure you hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to leave the show a review. For more gearing up, check out the Patreon for exclusive content and other perks. You can also shop gearing up merch through the link in my bio. Thanks again. We'll talk soon. Peace.